Welcome to Pushback. I'm Marin Maté. Joining me is Jacques Beau. He has served in a number of senior security and advisory positions at NATO, the UN, and with the Swiss military. He is also a former strategic intelligence officer with the Swiss Strategic Intelligence Service. Jacques, thank you for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. Let me just start by asking you to talk more about your background and how it has your how it has informed your visibility into the crisis in Ukraine. Well, uh, as I as you said, I just said I, I'm a strategic intelligence officer. I used to be in charge of the Warsaw Pact forces uh, in strategic. That was during the Cold War, but still, I have a good visibility on what uh, what's going on in Eastern Europe. Uh, I, I I used to speak and read Russian as well, so that gives me some access to 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 uh, some documents. Um, and recently, uh, I have been uh, seconded to NATO uh, as uh, uh, head of the, the, the struggle against uh, proliferation of small arms. And in that capacity, I was involved in several projects um, from 2014 onwards with NATO in Ukraine. And so I, I know the, the 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 context quite well. Uh, I was also monitoring the uh, possible uh, uh, import of influx of small small arms or arms or armaments in uh, in the Donbas uh, in in 2014. Um, <clears throat> And I have also worked because in my previous assignments in the UN, I, I used to work on the, on the restructuration of uh, armored forces. So when the Ukrainian armored forces got some problems, I mean, problems with personnel, uh, issues with suicide, with all these kind of things that you had in 2014, uh, also problems in recruiting uh, 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 military. So I was asked to participate in uh, for the NATO, on the NATO side, uh, on, on several projects in restoring armed, uh, Ukrainian armed forces. And so that's, that's, that's a little bit... In, in, a, in a nutshell, the uh, my background regarding this area. You've written a lengthy article, which I will link to in the uh, show notes for the segment. And you lay out uh, the causes of the Ukraine conflict uh, in three major areas. There is the strategic level, the expansion of NATO, uh, the political level, which is what you call the Western refusal to implement the Minsk agreements, and operationally, the continuous and repeated attacks on the civilian population of the Donbass over the past years and the dramatic increase in late February 2022. Let me ask you to start there. Talk about what you call the dramatic increase on civilians inside the Donbass in February, uh, the the period that led to the Russian invasion, the immediate period, uh, and how um, this escalation of attacks, as you say, uh, helped lead to this war, this Russian invasion. Well, I think we have to understand, uh, as you know, that the war, in fact, hasn't started on 24th of February this year. It started uh, already in 2014. Uh, but I think that the Russians always hoped that this conflict could be solved uh, on a political level, in fact. I mean, the, the Minsk agreements and all that. So <clears throat> basically, what led to the decision to 
to, to launch an offensive in the Donbas was not what happened since 2014. There is a there is a trigger for that, and the trigger is that two things. I mean, it it, it came in two phases, if you want. The first is the decision and the uh, uh, the law. Uh, uh, adopted by uh, Zelensky in March 2021, that means last year, to reconquer uh, uh, Crimea by force. And that started a buildup of the Russian armed force, uh, not, not the Russian, the Ukrainian armor, uh, uh, armored forces in the southern parts of the country. And so I, I think the Russians were perfectly aware of this buildup. They were aware that an operation was to be launched against the, the republics of the Donbass. Uh, but they did not know when. And of course, they were just observing that. And then came the, the real trigger. You may remember that, uh, that I think it was on the 16th of, of February. Uh, Joe Biden, during a press conference, uh, told that he knew that uh, the, the Russians would, 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 would attack. And how would he know, know that? Because I, I, I still have some contacts and uh, uh, nobody actually thought that the Russians before end of January, beginning of January, I think nobody thought that the Russians would attack Ukraine. So there, was, there must have been something that made uh, Biden aware that the Russians would attack. And this something, in fact, is the intensification of the artillery shelling of the Donbass starting on the 16th of February. And this increase in the shelling was uh, observed, in fact, by the, the observer mission of the OSCE, and they recorded this increase of uh, violation. And it's a massive violation. I mean, we are talking about something that is about uh, 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 30 times more than what it used to be, because you, in, in, in the last eight years, you had a lot of violations from both sides, by the way. Um, but suddenly, in, by, on the 16th of February, you had a massive uh, uh, increase of violation on the, on the Ukrainian side. So for the Russians, uh, Vladimir Putin in particular, that was the sign that, that the, 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 uh, the operation, I mean, the Ukrainian operation was about to start. And then, Everything started, uh, I mean, what, 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 all the events uh, uh, came very quickly. That means that uh, if, if we look at the figures, you, you can see that there's, a, a, as I said, a massive increase that increased from the 16th, 17th, and then it, it reached kind of a maximum on the, on the 18th of, of, uh, of February, and, and that was continuing. And the, 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 the Russian parliament, the Duma, uh, also was aware of this possible uh, uh, offensive. And they passed a resolution asking Vladimir Putin to recognize the independence of the two uh, uh, self-proclaimed republics uh, in the Donbass. 
And that's what Putin decided to do on the 21st of February. And just after uh, uh, adopting the decret, the, the, the law recognizing the independence of the two republics, uh, Vladimir Putin signed a friendship and assistance agreement with those two republics. Why did he do that? So that would allow the republics to ask for military help in case of attack. And that's why on the 24th of February, when the, the, uh, Vladimir Putin decided to launch the offensive, he could invoke the Article 51 of the UN Charter that provides for uh, uh, assistance in case of attack. And as you noted, the OSCE documented a, a big increase in ceasefire violations, artillery exactly. firing on the rebel-held side. But do you think, based on what you observed of the positioning of Ukrainian troops, do you think that the threat of an imminent uh, invasion or assault by the Ukrainian forces was real? Can you gauge that by how, from how they were positioned on the other side of the front line? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we had reports, and those reports were well available. I mean, uh, during the, in the last in the last couple of months. I mean, uh, uh, since last year, we knew that the um, uh, the Ukrainians were building up their forces in the south of the country, not on the eastern border with Russia, but on the border with the, the on the contact line with with Donbas. And as a matter of fact, as we can see, as we can have seen, we have seen that uh, from the 24th of February, uh, the, the Russians almost had almost no resistance in the first, in the start of the offensive, especially in the north. And so they could, what they have done uh, since then, it, they, they could uh, 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 surround the uh, Ukrainian forces in the south, in the southeast part of the country, that means between the two republic of the Donbas and the, I mean, Ukraine mainland, if you want, and and that's where the the, the bulk of the uh, Ukrainian forces are today, and they, according to the to the. That's that's exactly the Russian doctrine to fight to fight. Uh, uh, I mean, operational doctrine. They their main offensive was on the south, clearly, because the the objective stated by Vladimir Putin. Uh, we can probably come back on these uh, into details uh, later on, but this was demilitarization, demilitarization, and denazification. Okay, both objectives, in fact, were about to be were to be done or to be reached in the south of the country, and that's where the main efforts of the offensive was done. In in the the uh, the, the offensive or the the, the, the effort against Kiev is a so-called secondary effort. And he had as a funk, he had two functions basically. First of all, to put some pressure on the political leadership in Kiev, because the name of the game is to bring the uh, 
the Ukrainians to the negotiations. That was the first objective of this uh, second effort. The second objective of this, the, this second effort was to bind or to, to pin down the rest of the Ukrainian armed forces uh, uh, so that they could not reinforce the, the, the main forces which are in the Donbass area. And that worked quite well. So that means that the, the, uh, the, the Russians could surround their, the, as I said, the main forces, uh, the, main, the bulk of the armed forces, the, the Ukrainian armed forces. And once they have achieved that, they could withdraw some, some troops from Kiev. And that's what they have done since end of March. They have pulled uh, several units in order to reinforce what they want. I mean, they, 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 their own forces to, to carry on, on the, the main battle in the Donbass area. So now they, they are pulling and they have pulled this, these troops uh, uh, from uh, uh, the Kiev area. And these troops will now help to flank or to flank guard the, uh, the offensive against the, the, the main forces in the Donbass. And that's what some call the mother of all battles uh, that is currently going on in the Donbass area, where you have nobody knows exactly the number of of uh, uh, of, of troops uh, of Ukrainian troops. Estimates vary from six uh, uh, sixty thousand to eighty thousand who are surrounded, and they will be the the the, the, the forces will be cut in in smaller uh, cauldrons and then destroyed or neutralized. It's, it's pretty clear to me that Zelensky's government had no interest in serious diplomacy on all the critical issues that could have avoided a war. And I think the main factor is what I presume to be U.S. pressure behind the scenes, which we can't fully uh, prove now, but I imagine evidence of that might come out later. And certainly the open hostility of Ukraine's far right, who essentially threatened Zelensky's life if he made peace with Russia. And these threats have dogged him throughout his presidency and continue right up to the eve of the invasion. And it led to people like his top security official saying in late January that the implementation of the Minsk Accords would lead to Ukraine's destruction after Zelensky was elected on a platform of implementing Minsk. And that carried over to the final talks on implementing the Minsk Accords that were brokered by Germany and France at those talks in February. Zelensky's government all of a sudden refused to even speak to the uh, representatives of the rebels, which makes a, an accord a possible. And meanwhile, you had developments like this, which we just learned about from the, from the Wall Street Journal, which was that the German Chancellor Schultz on February 19th told Zelensky that, quote, Ukraine should renounce its NATO aspirations and declare neutrality as part of a wider European security deal between the West and Russia. And this pact, uh, Schultz proposed would be signed by Biden and Putin, but Zelensky rejected this, uh, rejected it out of hand. But my question is, because I think it's pretty conclusive that, you know, the Zelensky Ukraine side sabotage diplomacy. But what about Russia? Do you think Russia exhausted all of its diplomatic options to avoid a war? For example, why not go to the UN and ask for a peacekeeping force? In the Donbass. And second of all, if, if the aim is to protect the people of the Donbass, why invade far beyond the Donbass and, and not just go there? 
Well, I think the, the Russians have totally lost faith in the, in the West. I think that's, that's the main thing. They don't trust the, the, the West anymore. And that's why uh, I think now they rely on a, 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 a total victory uh, uh, on, on the military side in order to have uh, some benefits in, in the negotiation. I think Zelensky, I, I, I think Zelensky is, I'm not sure exactly if he's so reluctant to have peace. I think he cannot do it. I think from the very beginning, he was caught between his, remember that he was elected uh, with the idea of, of, of achieving peace in the Donbass. That was its, its objective. That was his program as, as a president. But I think the West and the, uh, the, I would say the Americans and the British didn't want uh, this peace to occur. And uh, uh, of course, the, the Germans and the French, who were the guarantors of the Minsk agreement for the Ukrainian side, they never really uh, uh, implement this, uh, their function. I mean, they, they never, they have never done their job, clearly. And especially France, which uh, who is uh, uh, simultaneously member of the Security Council, because I, rem I just remind you that the Minsk agreement were also part of a resolution of the Security Council. So means meaning that they have not only the signature of the, the different parties uh, 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 that was done in Minsk, but you have also the the members of the Security Council who were responsible for implementation of the agreement. And nobody wanted to have this agreement made. So that means that uh, uh, I, I think there was a lot of pressure on Zelensky so that he, he wouldn't even talk to the representatives of the uh, two uh, breakaway republics. And after that, we have seen, by the way, that we have several indications that uh, uh, Zelensky was not completely or is not completely in control of what's going on in Ukraine. I think the, the, the extreme, let's say, nationalist, um, extreme right, I don't know exactly what is the right term because it's a mixture of everything, uh, but these forces uh, definitely uh, prevent him or prevented him so far to, to, to do anything. And we, we can see also that he's in back and forth regarding peace. He started, as soon as he started, you, you may remember that end of February, as soon as Zelensky indicated that he might be willing to uh, start negotiations, and uh, this was the time where these negotiations were, uh, were to, 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 to take place in, uh, in Belarus. Uh, Hours, within hours after Zelensky decided that, the European Union came with uh, a decision uh, providing for half a billion uh, arms to, to, to Ukraine, uh, meaning that the, the, the Americans certainly, but I think the West as a whole, made every possible effort to prevent 
a political solution to the conflict. And I think the, the, the Russians are aware of that. Now, we have also to understand that the Russians have a, a, a different uh, understanding of how to wage a war than the Western, uh, Western uh, uh, powers, uh, especially the US. That means that in the West, we tend to, if we negotiate, we, we negotiate up to a certain point and then negotiations stop and we start war. And that's war, period. Uh, in the uh, Russian way of doing things, it's different. You start a war, but you never leave the, uh, a, a diplomatic track. And you go on both ways, in fact. You, you put nature pressure and you try to achieve an objective, your objective also with diplomatic means. This is, this is a very much uh, a Clausewitzian approach to war. When Clausewitz, as you know, defined war as the continuation with, of politics with other means. That's exactly how the Russians see that. That's why during the whole offensive, and even at the very beginning of the offensive, they started or they, they, they indicated they were willing to negotiate. So the, the, the Russians certainly want to negotiate, but they don't trust the, the uh, Western countries, I mean, the West uh, at large, to uh, uh, facilitate that, uh, that negotiation. And that's the reason why they didn't come to the, to the, the, uh, the, the Security Council. By the way, uh, they know that probably uh, because uh, as you know, this, this physical war that we witness now uh, is part of a broader war that was started uh, years ago against Russia. And I think, in fact, Ukraine is just, I mean, nobody is interested in Ukraine, I think. Uh, the, the, tar the, the aim, the objective is to weaken Russia. And once it will be done with Russia, they will do the same with China. And you can already see, I mean, the, we have seen that now the, 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 the Ukrainian crisis has overshadowed the, the rest, but you, have, you could have a very similar scenario happening with Taiwan, for instance. So, uh, and the Chinese are aware of that. That's the reason why they don't want to uh, give up their, uh, uh, let's say, uh, relationship let's say, with, with, with Russia. Now, the, 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 the name of the game is weakening Russia. And you know that there have been several studies um, done by the Rank Corporation on extending uh, Russia, overextending Russia, and so on. And where the, the whole scenario- Just to explain that, that Rand, together, just to explain that for people who aren't familiar with it, Rand is a Pentagon-type think tank, and they, yeah. they did a study in 2019 looking at all the different ways in which the U.S. could overextend and unbalance Russia. Exactly. And the top option was to send weapons to Ukraine to fuel a conflict there that could draw Russia in, which is, Russia in, which is exactly what's happened. Absolutely. And, and I, I think that there's a, 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 this is a, a complete design uh, of, for, for weakening Russia. And that's exactly what we see unfolding right now.
Uh, this, this, you, you, we could have anticipated that. And I think Putin anticipated that. And I think he, he understood that if on the on, uh, end of February, I mean, on the 24th of February, uh, or, or let's say just before, because he had to make the decision before, but in, in the days before the, the deciding the offensive, he understood that he could not do nothing. He had to do something. The, the, the Russian public opinion would never have understood why Russia would remain just observing uh, the Donbass uh, 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 republics being invaded or destroyed by Ukraine. So nobody would have understood uh, understand that. So the, he was obliged to go. And, and then I think, and that's what, if you remember what he said, on the, on the 24th of, of uh, February, he said, regardless of what he, he would do, the amount of sanctions he will receive would be the same. So basically, he knew that, that the, the, the slightest intervention in the Donbass would trigger a massive uh, 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 launch of sanctions. So he knew that. So then he decided, okay, then I, I have to go for the maximal option because one option would have been just to reinforce Donbass republics and just defend the, the republic on the line of contact. But he decided to go for the, for the larger option, which is to destroy those forces that threatened uh, 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 Donbass. And that's where you have those two objectives. Uh, demilitarization, which is not the whole demilitarization of all Ukraine, but it was to suppress the military threat that was on the Donbass. That's, that's the main objective of that. Um, there's a lot of misunderstanding of, of what he said. And of course, he was not very clear. But that's part of the Russian way of, of, of communicating and doing things. They want to keep options open. And that's the reason why they say the minimum, minimum things. And, and uh, they just say what's, what's, what's necessary. And this is exactly what, 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 uh, what Putin meant on the 24th. That was suppressing the military threat against the Donbass. Denazification had nothing to do with uh, killing uh, uh, Zelensky or destroying the, uh, the leadership in, um, in Kiev. That was definitely not the idea. And as a matter of fact, as I said, the, 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 the main, uh, the, 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 the way they conceive war is to combine a physical action and diplomatic action. So that means that in such a, a way of doing, you have to keep a leadership and you have to keep the leadership in order to negotiate. And that's why there was no way you would kill uh, or, 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 or destroy the, 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 the leadership in Kiev. So denazification was basically not about the 2.5% of, uh, of extreme right in Kiev, 
That was about the hundred percent of of uh, Azov people in in Mariupol and Kharkov and, and this kind of thing. So we we tend to to misunderstand because some people say, well, but you know, uh, why denazify? Because uh, there is only two point five percent the 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 political. I mean the. the right-wing parties in only 2.5% or something like that. So it's, it's meaningless. So why denazify? That's no, no sense. But it was not about that. It was definitely about those groups that were, in fact, uh, uh, recruited uh, from 2014 by the, uh, the Ukrainians in order to, let's say, I would say pacify control, I don't know exactly what's the right, the right word for that, but to, 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 or to fight in Donbass. These people were extremists, fanatics, and that's, that's, these people were dangerous. They are still and one of the points you make in your article is that, which I didn't know, is that part of the reason, or part of the reason why Ukraine had this need for militias, far-right militias, and foreign mercenaries is because of a uh, high rate of defection inside its own military ranks, people not wanting to serve and even defecting to the other side uh, of the rebellion in the Donbass. Exactly. In fact, uh, I noticed that, as I told you, I was in the, in the NATO and was monitoring the influx of weapons in, in the Donbass. And what we noticed um, is that there was not, uh, we couldn't identify uh, 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 import of weapons or export of weapons from the Russian side to the Donbass. But what we could see is that you had a lot of uh, Ukrainian units who defected, in fact, and, and, and complete battalions. And in, in, the, in, the, in, 2000, in 2014, uh, most of the heavy artillery that the, 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 the Donbass Republic gained were from, from defectors. I mean, the, the whole units defected with ammunition and people and all that. The, the reason is that the Ukrainian uh, uh, army was based on a territorial, uh, uh, I mean, was manned and organized on a territorial way. That means you had a lot of Russian speaking in the armed forces. Once they were uh, uh, sent to fight the Donbass, they didn't want to fight their own. Uh, uh, Colleagues and and, uh, and 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 Russian uh, uh, Russian speaking people, so that's they preferred to defect. And in addition to that, you had in 2014. I mean, in, in 2014, 2017, in, in that uh, in that period, um, the leadership of the Ukrainian army was extremely poor. You had a lot of corruption. The, I, I'm not sure that the military was prepared for such a kind of war. In fact, uh, because the war that was fought at that time by the rebels was very similar to what you can see in Middle East today or in, in, the, in the last in last years. That means very mobile units uh, uh, moving around with uh, uh, very rapidly, much faster than the heavy units that the Ukrainian army had, and as a result, the if we see the pattern of the different battles that were fought in 2014, 2015, you could see that the the, the Ukrainians were always uh, uh, could never lead 
the, they had never the initiative. The initiative was always with the rebels. And it was not guerrilla. That's it's important to say. It was kind of extreme mobile warfare. Um, and the, in addition to that, you had, I think, uh, the, the army was not really prepared to fight uh, uh, in, in general, so you had a lot of suicide, you had a lot of alcohol problems, you had a lot of, of uh, accidents, you had a lot of murders within the Ukrainian army. And that, that led a lot of young Ukrainians to leave the country because they didn't want to join the army. And uh, what I'm saying is, I mean, it, it was recorded uh, and reported by uh, uh, official reports in the UK and, and uh, in, in, uh, in the UK and the US, I think. He made some very interesting reports on, on the, the low rate of recruitment of, of individuals because people didn't want simply to, to join the army. And that's the reason why NATO was involved and I was involved uh, in, in such a program, trying to, to, re, uh, uh, to re reshuffle the image of the, of the army and find solutions to improve um, recruitment condition of, of the army and things like that. But the, the solutions that were provided by NATO, I mean, they were in fact institutional uh, solutions that would take time. And in order to compensate with the lack of personnel and to have a personnel which was probably to have more aggressive uh, uh, military personnel, they started to uh, use uh, uh, ultranationalists and mercenaries, as a matter of fact. Uh, and that, I, nobody knows exactly the number of these paramilitaries or extreme right militias. Uh, writers put the, the figure at one, one, 100,000. Um, I'm not able to, 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 to verify that, but that was the figure given by, by writers. Uh, and that seems to fit what, what we can observe now in, in the different uh, region of the country. Um, so these paramilitaries took a, a major role, not in, um, in, in mobile warfare and, and uh, I would say the normal um, field warfare, but they were used in maintaining order within cities. And that's exactly what you have today in Mariupol, for instance, where you had those people because they are not equipped for field operations. Uh, they are equipped for urban warfare. They are uh, they, they have light equipment, they have uh, some uh, armored vehicles but it's not, they don't really have tanks and things like this. So this is definitely units that are meant for urban warfare. That's what they do in, in, in major cities. And these guys are extremely uh, fanatic, we can say, I mean, and they are they're extremely dangerous. And that's why that explains the, 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 the way Mariupol, I mean, the, 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 the battles and the, the extremely brutal uh, uh, fights that you have in Mariupol, uh, as an example. And we probably will see the same thing in Kharkov, for instance. As we wrap, I want to ask you about some of the recent uh, atrocities that we've seen reported. There were 
reports of uh, mass civilian killings by Russia inside the town of Bucha and also killings of Ukrainian forces. And then you had the attack on the train station in Krematorsk. I'm wondering if you've evaluated both of these incidents and what you make of them. Well, there are two things in that. And the first is that the indication we have on both uh, incidents, to me, indicates that the Russians were not responsible for that. But, in fact, we don't know. I think that's what we have to say. I mean, if we are honest, we don't know what happened. The indications we have, everything, we, the, all the elements we have, tend to point at Ukrainian responsibility. But we don't know. What disturbs me in the whole thing is not so much that we don't know or that that they are, because in, in, in war, you, there's always such situations. There are always situations where you don't know exactly who is the real responsible. What disturbs me is that Western leaders started to make decisions without knowing what's going on and what happened. And that's, that's something that disturbs me quite deeply, that uh, uh, before having any result of any kind of, of inquiry, of investigation, uh, and I mean international, impartial uh, investigation, um, without, uh, without having, having that, um, we start already to take sanctions, to, to make decisions. And I think that illustrates how the whole decision-making process in the West was perverted, I think, uh, since, uh, since February or even before, in fact, because we had a similar thing after the, uh, uh, the hijacking, or not hijacking, by the way, it was not a hijacking, but the incident in, in Belarus with this uh, Ryanair uh, uh, flights, uh, you may remember last uh, May or in, in, in May last year, uh, that people started to react just minutes after the incident was reported in the press. Even they didn't know what was going on. So that's, and, 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 and that's the, the, this way of doing from uh, in the political leadership in Europe, I mean, the European Union, but also in, in European country that disturbs me as, as an intelligence officer, how can you make a decision with such uh, an impact on population or on whole countries that disturbs even our own economies, by the way. So it, has a, 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 it, it tends to backfire on us, but we take decisions without even knowing what's, what's going on. And, and that, I think, indicates an extremely immature leadership that we have uh, in, in the West in general. Um, that's, that's certainly the case in the U.S., but I think the, in, in the, this, the example of the Ukraine crisis shows that the, the, the European leadership is not uh, better than what you have in the U.S., I think. Uh, it's probably even worse, I think, sometimes. So, uh, and that's, that's what should worry us, that you have people deciding based on nothing. 
and and that's that's extremely dangerous, I think. Jack Bow, he is a former strategic intelligence officer with the Swiss Strategic Intelligence Service. Also served in a number of senior security and advisor positions at NATO, the UN, and the Swiss military. Jacques, thank you very much for your time and insight. Thank you for your time. Thank you.